there was some conversation about how a guy was like supposed to take some type of upper and his friend gave him like a Viagra instead. And then another player chimed in and said, oh, that happened to me too. It's like, is that a really common phenomenon? <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. I'm Nate Silver. And, and this, this is a mailbag Mailbag segment. talk. <laughs> mailbag All right, talk. So I think is this is like underground model talk where we don't actually have a forecast model to talk about, but we still want to answer listener questions and talk about the state of politics. So I don't know we solicited requests for names for these kinds of podcasts in the past. And honestly, I don't think we got very many good ones. I think the one that stuck out was going postal, which we didn't settle on. Oh, yeah. Going. I mean, it's a little violent. is yeah. the problem. But yeah, in today's environment, you can never be too careful. But Nate. Yeah. We ha- I got to cut to the chase. You're back from Las Vegas. You spent what more than 40 days on the strip. What do you have to show for that time? So, gross, I made like 200K in poker tournaments. Ooh, starting with the top line number, you said gross, what was net? High 100s, but the net is like not. Because you were living large? Did you spend like 50,000 of that just eating? I mean, yeah, spending 44 days in hotels is not cheap, even if you're kind of are in whatever programs from whatever mega corporations run casinos and you kind of get okay rates. But like, it was a good trip. I had one really deep cash where I got second place in one event, but was there for, it was a lot of poker, doing a lot of interviews for my book, a lot of a lot of meals, you know, a lot of late nights. I actually don't go too wild when I'm in Vegas, weirdly. Like I'm actually like- Such a disappointment. <laughs> I know. No, I mean a little bit, but not too crazy because like I'm there for work. And poker goes pretty late at night. These tournaments can last anywhere until from 11 at night. Some go until three in the morning, right? And so like the time that you might be like going out to dinners and doing all this drinking and stuff, you're actually often playing poker. I have only spent 36 hours in Las Vegas in my life. And that was my only experience was like the Dre's After Hours Club. And I don't think I bet a single dollar the entire time I was there. So we've had very different experiences. But I think the main reason you were there, like you said, was to do interviews for your book. What did you learn about people who take risk for a living? Well, there's going to be a a book about that. No, I mean, I think one thing I think is underappreciated about poker players and maybe other people who take risk, it's important to be very observant. And the best poker players are noticing little things about the environment, about maybe physical reads on people, maybe just subtleties about how the hand is being played and they're they're attentive and observant. One of the things people don't realize about poker is that it's easy for poker to become pretty boring. In most variants of poker, you're only playing maybe, say, a quarter of your hands or something like that, which means a lot of time you're sitting there doing nothing. A lot of the decisions are kind of perfunctory, right? But then you'll have a couple of moments every hour or every day where you're making really important decisions. And the more information you can like bring to bear on those problems, the better you'll do. Or there are times you can create opportunities for yourself a little bit. And so the degree of concentration required, I think, is more than to play really well is like more than people might realize. Because you can kind of do things at like a surface level and be fine. And a lot of the players in these World Series tournaments are pretty bad players. Ooh, shady. They are. (laughs) 
in terms of writing your book and studying people who take risks for a living or recreationally, did you learn more from the time that you spent playing poker or the time that you spent interviewing people? I mean, interviews are more efficient, but you're also trying to like get immersed in the scene and pick up. I'm not going to like spend a lot of time, I don't think, writing about, oh, how I play this particular poker hand. But to be kind of immersed in in the scene, it's kind of like a form of method acting or something. Nate Silver's new book opens. He's sitting at the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas, ready to win $200,000. Is that the opening of your book? Did I nail it? No. Thank you, Galen. No, we don't want too much of that, but like, but to be a participant in this life for a month and a half, as opposed to just observing it, even though like the poker content is probably going to be boring for most readers and I want more people with that. But like, it's interesting to be kind of immersed in a different world that isn't politics and in some ways is very opposite of the East Coast political world. I think it probably makes me a better political analyst. I know you're going to come back and tell all us arrogant East Coast elites how the real world is. No, but don't like- Don't worry, don't worry. I, I remain tethered to the real world. But Las Vegas is in some sense very real, right? It's very real in the sense that it is kind of quintessentially American in a lot of ways. It's quintessentially capitalistic in a lot of ways. You do also get like a, if you want to know what a cross-section of men, because for reasons that could be a whole another podcast, 95% of poker players are men. But if you want to know what younger men, older men, liberal men, conservative men- Men of different races and different backgrounds think about politics. You'll get a lot of that at the poker table. What's the weirdest conversation you had at the poker table? I mean, there'll be conversations about like COVID and vaccine policy. Well, that's no fun. That's like Twitter. There was some conversation about how a guy was like supposed to take some type of upper and his friend gave him like a Viagra instead. (laughs) And another player... Another player chimed in and said, oh, that happened to me, too. It's like, is that a really common phenomenon? <laughs> Wait, like before playing poker, this guy wanted to take like an Adderall before playing poker. Adderall, and instead, Adderall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead, he shows up to the poker table having taken a Viagra. Which can create issues. I mean, you're telling me. Yeah. I love that for your book. I hope it makes it in. <laughs> Let's dig into what we're actually here to discuss, which is listener questions and also the political environment in general. We did get a couple questions from listeners about your trip to Las Vegas. We will keep those towards the end. If we have time, we'll get to them. But before we get to listener questions, I do want to sort of set the scene here. In the wake of the Virginia and New Jersey elections, there's been plenty of discussion about the current political environment. We did a little bit of discussing this when you were on the podcast, when you were still in Las Vegas. We have the generic ballot polling that we do an average of on the 538 website, which is basically just asking Americans if the election were today, would you vote for a Republican or a Democrat for Congress? Currently, that generic ballot polling is tied. Do you think that's accurate? And if not, what should we understand about the current political environment in America? One question is tied, right? Based on the results in Virginia and New Jersey, it seems like it should be better than tied for Republicans. Those results were consistent with the Republicans being ahead by a number of points, you know, five, seven, ten, or something on the generic ballot. So, and there's some question whether pollsters were kind of like, oh, let's kind of take another look at our assumptions of that generic ballot because it doesn't look too good in the wake of Virginia and New Jersey. I should say that that generic ballot poll, most of these polls are among registered voters. Typically, the opposition party, Republicans in this election, enjoy an enthusiasm and turnout advantage. So maybe if it's tied among registered voters, then it's GOP plus two or three among likely voters. 
At the same time, it is worth mentioning that these races for governor in Virginia and New Jersey were races for governor. They weren't races for Congress. And a voter could rationally conclude, let's say some wealthy suburban voter in Virginia who voted for Mitt Romney in 2012 and then grudgingly Clinton in 16 and grudgingly Biden in 2020. They could say, I am scared of what Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump would do, but matters combined to Virginia are combined for Virginia. And so therefore I feel more comfortable voting Republican for governor in my state or for other statewide offices. So one needs to be a little bit careful about making inferences about congressional races from mm-hmm. gubernatorial races. But like, but given that Biden's approval rating is down in the dumps, given that historically the uh, president's party does poorly at midterms, given that maybe we can discuss this, it doesn't feel like we've turned the corner <laughs> in America to like a post-pandemic summer. I guess now it's not even summer anyway, right? It certainly seems like the issue environment, quote unquote, is at best mediocre for Democrats. I'll put it like this. I don't think the generic ballot's that interesting right now. I think there are lots of reasons to think that the political environment's likely to be bad for Democrats next year. I think the generic ballot is in some ways not the best indicator of that, both because it can take a while to lock in and because if it were tied, then that would be, I think, pretty optimistic for Democrats relative to what we saw earlier this month. Right. So one of the other indicators that we have, which you've already mentioned, is President Biden's approval rating. Today, his approval rating is 43 percent compared to his disapproval rating of 52 percent. Do you think at this point that's a bottoming out for the president or do you see it getting worse? I mean, the general assumption when you're we're now not quite a year into his presidency is that it's kind of a random walk. And so that means it's equally likely to improve or worsen. There probably are some bounds on a president's approval rating in this era where things are very partisan and less voters in the Democratic Party start to turn on Joe Biden in mass, then it might not get a lot lower. You know, I mean, he's kind of right where a lot of presidents have been in <laughs> heading into their midterm. 43% approval would not be that uncommon two years into a presidency. But remember, <laughs> The pattern is that that usually loses you quite a few seats in Congress. And so the same pattern would be most likely repeated unless Biden finds some way to improve. One more topic that I want to get to before we dive into all the listener questions, and we actually did get several listener questions about this. It was a conversation that I had with Monmouth pollster Patrick Murray on Monday. Essentially, his argument is that we should stop conducting horse race polling and focus more on issue polling because it would engender perhaps more trust in institutions, because when people see in the media the horse race polling being wrong again and again, they lose trust in institutions. I'm curious what your take is on that, if you read his op-ed and if you have thoughts. Yeah, I like Patrick a lot. He's a good guy. I think that's complete bullshit on like several levels. One level is that if election polling is broken, which I don't really think it is, but broken is kind of a subjective term. Issue polling is going to be just as bad. The one thing that you don't have to worry about with issue polling is turnout. If you want to survey what all adults think, then there's no election per se. But it's generally not thought that modeling turnout has been the problem with polling the past couple of election cycles. It's more about not getting a representative sample, more or less, right? Yeah. But like the only way that we know our polls are connected with reality is when we can actually perform an out-of-sample experiment. We can actually test and say, because polling is hard, it's hard to reach people on the phone, it's hard to get a representative sample, right? The only way you can kind of keep things calibrated to reality is by essentially making predictions, by forecasting elections or 
the outcomes of other unknown events that are verifiable later on. If you can't do that, then I wouldn't trust the issue polling at all. I don't think you should trust issue polling from firms that never do election polls. There's no way to verify that it's connected to reality. And also there are challenges like the way you phrase question. Who are you going to vote for for governor of New Jersey is a much more straightforward question than how do you feel about Biden's infrastructure program, where if you change one word and how you frame that, then it could pretty radically shift the responses potentially. So if you're not going to do election polling, then just don't poll. Go find something else to do. That's cool. Well, you know, Gallup and Pew both don't do election polling. Yeah, they're lame. That's lame. I mean, they're great. <laughs> and they're great people who work for them. But like, that's, that's totally lame. How can we trust Gallup and Pew if we don't, if everyone else is putting their necks out there? And if you think you're the high prestige polling firms, then you, I mean, you have to, you build transparency and trust by actually doing things that are verifiable. And the best way to verify something is to like actually write down a forecast or prediction or something that you don't know the results ahead of time. Someone who believes in the power of forecasting, then it's kind of way easier to like come in from the sideline and ambiguously twist the ambiguous thing you said before to make it sound like you were always right. And the media environments don't I mean, like the average person in media, as well as the average consumer. I mean, I totally sympathize with like Patrick, because we're on the get the brunt of this too, right? We're like, it might be the case that you get criticized a lot more for a quote unquote bad poll or bad prediction than you get credit for a good forecast or good poll, which means the incentives are totally fed up. And so like I totally, totally understand why someone would say we don't have the incentives to do election polling. But it certainly does not make issue polling better. It makes issue polling worse and less trustworthy. So if we're being honest about that, like it's just not worth to get trolled by lots of annoying people on the internet, even though the polls are mostly pretty good, because when we hear it, we'll never hear the end of it when our polls are off, quote unquote, right? So I just, I'm not going to do it anymore. It's not worth the pain. I am totally down with that. I'll probably do that one day with election forecasts, Nate's right? Like, Nate's like speaking for myself, that moment might not be so far away. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I'm not going to pretend it's in the noble service of like, journalism. Well, I hope to sit down to discuss that decision with you when someday you make it. The last model talk. The last, the last Whenever model that it, talks. Yeah. We're both old and yeah. Oh God. Hanging out in the metaverse, Scalin. In oh the metaverse, the last model. Okay. Um, what does our metaverse podcast studio look like? Is it on the strip? Maybe it's, yeah, maybe it's a virtual casino or something, right? You told me one time that the place where you would go if the world was ending was Key West. And it provoked me to take a vacation there one time, and I really didn't like it. And you were like, I didn't mean that it was a great place to go on vacation. You were just like, it just seems like the appropriate place to be for the end of the world, which I hadn't realized when you said that. So maybe, maybe the last model talk should take place in the Key West metaverse. I've kind of revised that. I think somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere, if you look at like, which place are within reach of like, nuclear weapons like Lima, Peru. Lima, Peru is actually a pretty good place where... Have you actually done this? Have you figured out where you should be if you want to I mean, maybe, maybe once. <laughs> nuclear war? Lima, Peru is pretty optimal if you want to go somewhere that may or may not be within range of most of the superpowers nuclear missiles, but has, you know, it's a nice town. It's a beach town. There's great food there. It's kind of laid back. So yeah, if you're fearing an apocalypse, then I'm sure New Zealand and Australia if they're not locking you in your home because of COVID are also really nice places. But yeah, Southern Hemisphere I've kind of revised too, I think. All right, well, if there's a rush on real estate in Lima, Peru, you noted blame Nate Silver. There we go. Okay, our first question comes from Dan. He asks, Democrats ran on and won on and delivered 
more COVID relief, boosting most households' finances, and parents are even getting monthly reminders via the child tax credit of this, yet 63% don't remember. Is it too pessimistic to say that policy has zero effect on public opinion? Okay, and the poll that he's referring to is a civics poll where 37% of Americans say Biden has done something that benefited them personally, even though somewhere in the range of 80% receive stimulus checks and many people are receiving these child tax credit benefits and so on and so forth. So the overarching question that Dan has asked with several caveats and additional pieces of information is, does policy actually affect public opinion? It can. I mean, clearly, like efforts to do things on healthcare, for example, have been associated with negative shifts in public opinion toward the party. It's like doing whatever it's doing. But like, I mean, I think the mechanism is usually thought to be that you give someone money or improve their economic situation, they're happier about that. And therefore, because people do to some degree base their decisions on economic outcomes, that that should help the party in the long run. It may be that people don't know which checks were approved under Biden versus Trump or whatever else. One of the things I find a little bit funny, Galen, is that political elites will give you a lot of pretentious chatter about the issues and the issues and the issues and how the issues are so much more important than the horse race or whatever else. But then if you actually like follow what they're interested in, it's just whatever the most dramatic soap opera story of the day is, you know, dissing on some unpopular figure or, the you know, what this week's like the Kyle Rittenhouse trial that's generating like a lot of chatter and I'm not saying it's like there aren't important issues being uncovered there, but the attention span of the average media elite is that of like a fly. And so when they kind of like, not our reader, I don't think our reader is like a media elite, but when they criticize voters for like not being focused enough on bread and butter issues, I'm like, bro, you're a part of the issue here. You are not very focused on bread and butter issues. The White House should be, and I guess you can kind of say maybe the White House hasn't like driven home a consistent enough message. I mean, one question that is worth thinking about is it's almost always the case that parties assume the presidency and then they have a bad year at the next midterm. Part of why that might happen is that when a party gets in power, then there are a lot of debts it has to pay off to different members of the coalition. So there are certain parts of the Democratic coalition who want a bunch of stimulus spending. There are certain parts who want a bunch of action on voting rights. There are certain parts who want climate policy or immigration policy changed. There are certain parts who have cultural critiques or grievances. And so it's kind of hard to keep a presidency focused, notwithstanding all the other things that could go on in the world that could knock you off track, potentially. But you don't see like a lot of focused, concerted messaging about like the infrastructure bill from the White House or from the media. (laughs) It was like one on the list of 15 things that have happened in the past couple of weeks. And so when people say they're surprised that like policy hasn't moved the needle, I mean, it's not really a major focus of where news coverage is spending its time. So the effect might be more that, oh, in a year from now, people are voting for the midterm and they say, oh, actually, like, financially, I'm doing okay. So you want about Biden, but like, I'm doing okay here. And, you know, they might not even connect it with like anything Biden did or if they see like a, I guess they see a road getting fixed and it's not causing them traffic problems, but it's a nicer road. I mean, I don't know, maybe it matters, right? It's visible stuff at least. But I don't think it's as straightforward. I think it's a little bit romantic to think that voters are following the ins and outs of policy, unless it affects them in a very direct way. We saw a lot of people talk about this with the Affordable Care Act, which is that in many of the states where people saw their benefits the most enhanced, Obama was extremely unpopular. This doesn't seem all that new in the realm of the way that politics works in America. 
No, it's not new. And again, why the reasons for this are are not entirely settled, but in general, the public is skeptical of whatever the majority wants to do. I mean, it's weird, right? It's weird because people, if you ask them how things are going in the country, they say badly. Yeah. If they ask you, how are things going for you personally? They say, oh, actually, okay, not too bad. And weirdly, people kind of don't quite (laughs) square that circle. And so whether it's Democrats or Republicans do things to like change the course of the country, people are like, ah, I'm doing okay. It seems like there's more downside than upside for me. So I'm not sure I like it. And governance becomes hard. Personal optimists, global pessimists. I think I have actually described myself that way before. Me too. (laughs) I'm very pessimistic about the future of... But anyway, let's move on to more light subject matters. More light subject matters. Okay, here's a very technical question. Sarah asks, everyone talks a lot about college-educated versus non-college-educated voters and the differences between them. But what is actually considered college-educated? Is it any amount of college, regardless of degree? Do you have to have a bachelor's or higher to count as college-educated? She says, for example, I have a two-year degree from a community college, and my husband attended five years of university but didn't graduate. What category would we put into by a pollster or election analyst? So they would usually be put in the some-college category. It depends on how fine you're slicing and dicing voters. When you're talking about a two-way distinction, so college educated or not, that usually means that you complete a four-year degree, which I think is kind of elitist against people who have great two-year degrees or other degrees or didn't complete college but learned a lot there. But that's the industry standard. Some polls will break it down into four categories, so no college, some college, bachelor's degree, and graduate degree. So that's the other thing that you'll see sometimes. And for the purposes of determining, because we talk about how this affects people's politics, when it's broken down into four different categories, no college, some college, bachelor's degree, graduate degree, is each one of those a different gradation of increasing support for the Democratic Party? Is it basically a straight line from the more education you get, the more likely you are to vote for the Democratic Party? Yeah, it's pretty linear, which is why when you get into spaces that are extremely, extremely college educated, so like a university town or a college campus, then they can have extremely left-wing politics. In America, they have the most restrictive COVID policies are college campuses where 99% of students are vaccinated. Because it's like pure, undistilled, liberal elite ideology, which for reasons that I still find not as obvious as other people, is very hawkish on COVID. Or with respect to like the views of race and gender, the so-called critical race theory that actually comes out of academic types of environments for the most part. And so, yeah, it is like not an on-off switch. The more college education somebody has, the more they will share certain characteristics. And by the way, it is education. It used to be that kind of education in income were lumped together, but they can be pretty different. A like high school graduate who never attended college and became rich as like a real estate broker, that person is probably Republican. A philosophy graduate from Stanford who works at a coffee shop and makes $33,000 a year is going to be a liberal. So that's different, right? It is education and the correlation with social class that is more determinative in the U.S. today of political behavior than economic well-being. We got another interesting political trends question from someone else named Sarah. And the question is this. There's a saying about political ideology. 
if you're not a liberal when you're young, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative when you're old, you have no brain. And my understanding has always been that, generally speaking, people become politically conservative as they get older. She says, as an elder millennial, I can say my own ideological trajectory certainly has not aligned with this. In my 20s, I considered myself a libertarian. She goes on to say, as I approach 40, I would definitely consider myself to be liberal progressive on the left. She says, sorry for using those terms interchangeably. She said, although she voted for Biden, she would have preferred to vote for Warren or Sanders. Then she says, here's the question. Is there historical data that supports the idea that people become more conservative as they age? Do we know to what extent it's still true, if it's happening less, and what implications that could have politically? So one question is whether it's about age per se or about different life events. People do tend to get more conservative as they earn more income. They tend to get more conservative maybe on a different set of issues when they have children, and there are some complicated dynamics about the gender of the parent and the gender of the child that a lot of smart people have studied. But as a general rule, that tends to be true. So do you get more conservative as you age? I think, loosely speaking, that's true. Is that a causal effect? I mean, probably to some extent, but not to a complete extent. There are like cohort effects too, meaning that people that were raised in like an era of like liberal ascendancy probably retain some of that or conservative tendency retain some of that. The Reagan era or the Obama era or whatever. Yeah, like I guess I'm kind of like the, I'm 43, I'm the tail end of Gen X. And Gen Xers actually like are a little bit more conservative than you might think, in part because they kind of came of age in an era where like, you know, Reaganism was dominant when I was a kid and then Clintonism as I was like graduating college. And Clintonism in some ways is like a fairly conservative form of, of liberalism, right? And so there can be generational effects that, persist even as other changes occur in your in your life course. How do you observe millennials progressing through that process? There's kind of this often rumored notion that like younger millennials, you're getting more conservative cohorts relative to the Obama era. But I don't know if there's a huge amount of conservative <laughs> youth, especially as we are kind of in an age now where cultural issues are more dominant in some ways in the political conversation. You know, that probably is a way to retain appeal to younger voters while maybe losing appeal with older voters, potentially. So millennials are pretty liberal. It's not necessarily a prediction of what will be true 10 or 20 years from now, but I don't think the terrain the GOP is on is really meant to appeal to younger voters, in part because younger voters are much more racially diverse than older voters. And they're much more diverse, by the way, also on sexual and gender identity. So if you're running a party that's meant to appeal white to white straight people, then you're not going to pick up a lot of support among younger people, just as a matter of like the demographics of of younger people. All right. I have some more listener questions that I want to get to. But first. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. All right, up next, we have a really broad question, and I honestly don't know how you would go about answering this. 
maybe it's a whole course in political science, but Elliot asks, over the next 10, 20, or 30-year period, which political party is best positioned? So I don't think you can really go out more than about 10 years before it kind of all washes out. It's like in weather forecasting, you can run like a computer simulation, but after about, I forget the number is now, it's longer than it used to be, but like after about 10 or 12 days, the entire atmosphere of the earth has like circulated around. There's like no more information anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So like, what will politics look like in 20 years? I think the only intelligent answer is we have no idea. I mean, you can kind of go through one election at a time. You know, 2022 is likely to be a good Republican year. <laughs> you know, what's also true is that for the next period of time here, given current political coalitions, the GOP has advantages as far as the efficiency of their vote, that they are the more popular party in a lot of low population states that each elect two senators. This current amount of redistricting is more favorable to the GOP than for Democrats. We've seen a big electoral college split. That probably takes more than a cycle or two for those political coalitions to change. And so, so we can probably say is that for the next, let's say, four to 12 years, I have some ambiguity here. For the next couple of elections, the GOP probably is at home field advantage because of these efficiency of, of its coalition. Gerrymandering plus the way the Senate is built. If you have a coalition that like appeals to white rural voters, then you punch way above your weight as far as how much of the popular vote you have. And that probably won't change in in four years, probably won't change in six years. By 10 or 12 years, I don't know. Remember, Obama actually had an advantage in the Electoral College relative to his share of the popular vote. If you'd had as close an election as you had in 2012, or in 2016 and 2012, then Obama would have won pretty easily, right, which Clinton did but, you know, Democrats still are in a difficult place as far as the Electoral College goes. You're also in a thing where, like, the President's Party usually loses at the midterms. I think Democrats got away with a fair number of bad habits because Trump is, like, a relatively easy target. I mean, people think of Trump was some political genius. I mean, in some ways, he was, right? He did become president. But he did kind of reorient the political coalitions in a way. I mean, I think winning the GOP primary was an extremely impressive feat by Trump. But he also does a lot of things in his personal conduct that really turn off a lot of swing voters and that voters really dislike. And so I don't think Democrats realize the extent to which people were voting against Trump, maybe more than for them. And maybe this is some of the current doldrums that like mm -hmm. Biden Democrats find themselves in. It's not all of it. I mean, there's a lot of factors at play here, right? That in some ways brings us to the next question from Colin, who asks, what would it take for Democrats to avoid a bad midterm in 2022? Even in the abstract, just beyond 2022, is there anything a party in power can do to avoid a bad midterm? Well, no, probably not, right? Um, <laughs> Sorry, folks, that's the end of the podcast. I mean, the historic exceptions have been September 11th, which is not something that Bush did, has been the Monica Lewinsky trial, which is interesting because it means, you know, you can imagine so much overreach that there's a backlash, but it, it's hard for there to be that much of backlash when the party is not in power. It's easy to imagine a world where Republicans pick up at least one, probably both branches of Congress in 2022, and then impeach Biden, go way overboard and have a bad 2024. That's easy to imagine. Not necessarily the only scenario, the most likely one, but easy to imagine. It's pretty hard, to be honest, for me to imagine what it takes for Democrats to get to a better 2022. But I'll tell you that the first part of it is obvious which is that people will need to feel as though the pandemic is well and truly behind them by next fall. And maybe also long enough where some of the knockoff effects of the pandemic 
you could talk to 10 different economists, they'd have 10 different opinions on like how much inflation and supply chain issues are or aren't related to the pandemic per se. If things feel normal again, quote unquote, by fall 2022, then we have a more competitive set of elections, I think. That's a prerequisite. It's also not a coincidence, people kind of forget this, but the Biden White House got very annoyed with some of the news coverage, like at the New York Times on their outlets, when we started to see some of these studies about the Delta variant and and how vaccinated people do or do not transmit the virus, I think some of that coverage has not held up well. You know, the notion that, oh, vaccinated people transmit just as easily. That's not what the science said at the time. It's not what the science says now. I think that coverage was bad. But the Biden White House is getting like very annoyed, like the New York Times for that coverage, because they kind of knew that when you're not having this like recovery summer and when vaccinated people are like, oh, we're not out of the woods yet, then that environment is pretty tough for a party. People are going to be unhappy. And so, but there is time now for, frankly, I think there's a good chance to look at the models that will have some type of winter wave here, hopefully not as bad as when we had last winter and probably with many vaccinated people, not nearly as deadly no matter what. But if we do feel like we've achieved normalcy by next summer, then that's the single most important thing that could affect Democrats' chances of retaining one or both chambers of Congress. So this next question I'm asking in part because I'm interested and maybe listeners are interested in maybe more of the follow-up question, but this is the question. When a political environment is Democrat plus three or Republican plus five, are those numbers linear in how we should expect them to impact election results? And are some congressional districts, Senate seats more resilient than others to the ebb and flow of the environment? So we have this notion of elasticity, which is that how responsive are individual voters to changes in the environment? Imagine a time where like there is a big, I don't know if like Colorado Springs or something, I guess they have an Air Force Academy, but like imagine a time where like it's a big home base, both for some liberal arts college and for a big evangelical church complex. And everyone in town is either associated with the liberal institution or the conservative one. And the liberals vote Democratic always, and the conservatives vote Republican always. That's a swing town, but it's always going to vote 50-50 no matter what. There are no actual swing voters in that hypothetical town. The contrast is a place like New Hampshire, (laughs) where you have a lot of secular, college-educated, somewhat wealthy, somewhat libertarian. I mean, New Hampshire is kind of weird. I like New Hampshire, but, you know, if you're winning the states where are people a little weird, you know, New Hampshire, New England in general, more swingy. And so it might swing more than you would expect from the national swing alone. There are a lot of swing voters in New Hampshire. So different districts are more responsive to the political environment. That's true. The follow-up question here is better or work. So better work is running against Texas Governor Greg Abbott in 2022. Abbott's approval is underwater in Texas. Does that mean that O'Rourke has a chance or should we expect national politics and the general national environment, as we discussed, to kind of trouble all of that? So Beto, number one, what he did in 2018 was pretty impressive. He came within a couple of points of Ted Cruz. We saw in 2020 that it's not necessarily the case that Texas is an emerging blue state. But given that he is likely to attract a national, a lot of national attention, that's probably not helpful to him, right? It would be better for the Democrats to run a Texas-specific campaign on maybe the abortion restrictions there, 
maybe in Governor Abbott's handling of COVID, that would be kind of a better campaign than a quasi-national campaign. And when problem with like kind of these celebrity camp, I mean, you know, he was in Congress. I don't mean to, I don't mean that in a demeaning way, but like, first of all, I think the money is like diminishing returns, right? But to run a big campaign where you're relying on consultants that have experience in national politics, where there's a lot of media coverage by national media outlets, I don't think that's helpful to you if you're Beto O'Rourke trying to fight what is certainly in a midterm year, a pretty uphill battle in Texas. All right. That leads us to our rapid fire round of questions. Just a sentence or two will do. First one's from Paul. If the election were today and it was Biden versus Trump, what are the odds on Biden winning re-election? I'm not going to answer that because events are conditioned by the fact that parties know when elections are, right? Like if you had literally another baseball like World Series today, which team would win? I mean, it might be whichever team had happened to have like a bunch of training they were doing in in November, which is usually when you would take time off as a baseball player, right? So it's like, I think it's not a useful right. hypothetical. Unfair question, Paul. No, it's a fair question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry, Paul. Next question. Is Illinois governor realistically in play for the GOP in 2022? Sure. We still have some like very blue states that have Republican governors, Vermont, Massachusetts, New Jersey nearly got one. I mean, Virginia is not that much redder than Illinois. It is, but like it's not enormously different. So yeah, like in a good environment, a gubernatorial race as opposed to a Senate race with a moderate Republican candidate, that's a good standard of what the outer limits might be. That in that environment, the right Republican candidate could eke out a two-point win in a state like Illinois. They're not favored, but I'll put it like this, right? Would you rather bet on a Republican winning the governorship of Illinois or Beto O'Rourke winning in Texas? They're both pretty unlikely. They're probably about the same degree of unlikeliness. Okay, that's fair. The next question comes from someone named Galen, and this is Uh truly not me. Uh, The question is, what odds would you put on the United States being a liberal democracy 25 years from now? Well, I'm worried about five years and 25 years. (laughs) <laughs> I, mean, okay. I don't know, right? What odds would you put on the United States being a liberal democracy five years from now? I don't know, man. I don't know, man. I mean, it depends on how you define it. I mean, to me, the more tangible question is, what are the chances that you could have an election outcome that is not respected? At this point, the party not respecting would be the Republican Party, I would think, to the point where, like, the person who had been elected according to the way the votes are traditionally counted would not be the person that assumes the presidency. I don't know that I want to go on record with like a percentage on that yet, but it's not a trivial percentage. It's not 1%. It's some number that is very much, I think, worth worrying about. Probably not 50% either, but it's a number that's non-trivial and is very much worth people being concerned about. Next question from Peyton. Do you think that ranked choice multi-member districts in the U.S. would help curb extremism? And ranked choice multi-member districts essentially means that in the House, there wouldn't be one lawmaker for every district. There'd be a bunch of lawmakers in one big district, and they would get assigned based on the vote share of the party or the ranked choice balloting. In theory, I think a ranked choice should produce more moderate candidates, right? Because like, if you have a liberal, a conservative, and a moderate, then in theory, everyone ranks a moderate at least number two if things are linear. The empirical research on 
whether ranked choice type systems produce more moderate candidates, I think is a lot more mixed and maybe doesn't support that theoretical construction as well. I mean, also in theory, if you kind of did away with party primaries and you would have more moderate candidates elected, political activists tend to be terrified about this because political activists are mostly partisans. That's how it works today. And so like they treat that as like kind of a bug and not a feature. And again, by the way, one thing that like people are, I guess we're not talking a lot about redistricting, right? Well, we can. We, we will in the future. I, we did get questions about gerrymandering. We will in the future. People are very concerned about like how many seats are Democrats or Republicans gaining or losing on net. What you're definitely seeing is there are fewer and fewer and fewer swing districts. And so that makes means that the average member of Congress is going to be more extreme, right? If you only have to worry about winning your primary, then you can and frankly often will. We can see examples of it be a total nutcase. All right. Last question before we get to the final couple of questions, which are about Las Vegas. Are you all developing a model for next year? When are we getting model talk again? We like our congressional midterm model a lot. So I don't anticipate doing a lot of work on it. We think it's a great product, but of course we'll be covering next year through the model. We're not gonna we're not gonna be quitters like other people and be like, oh, you know, election forecast. <laughs> um, when do you think we're gonna launch it? At the appropriate time. At the appropriate One time. One thing we always like, I mean, sometimes we like launch it at the appropriate time, which is kind of later because like I'm still working on stuff. And again, this year I think it's relatively minor upgrades. It shouldn't take as long. You know, I do think that there is a point in time at which the model becomes like a more useful way to frame the election. And that's maybe a little bit later than other people think, but I don't know. It'll happen at some point. Okay. So I guess that's the same answer for when we'll get model talk again, which is at the appropriate time. But in the meantime, you have mailbag talk. So rejoice. Here we go. Uh, this question comes from Sippin Mead. I think Mead is in like the fermented honey drink. I'm going to Vegas next month. What destinations are on the Nate Silver certified Las Vegas food tour TM? This is your opportunity, Nate. Oh, wow. I mean, you kind of have to go category by category, right? The classic answer is that Lotus of Siam is this very, very famous Thai restaurant, which is off the strip and very, very good. Had a couple of really good meals there. There's a lot of good Mexican food in Vegas. There's a place called Tacos El Gordo, which is open until 3 to 4 a.m. It's quite authentic and good. There's a place called Bahamar, which has really awesome fish and seafood tacos. I would be missed not to shout out, if we're in the Mexican category, the El Dorado Cantina, to me in some ways, is the quintessential Vegas restaurant in that it's open 24 hours. It is attached to a very large strip club. I mean, what more could we ask for? It has really good food and margaritas. And so, you know, that I would recommend. The advice I give is the strip is pretty predictable. I mean, the restaurants are like well reputed on the strip will do fine, but get off the strip. Las Vegas is a very diverse place, particularly for Mexican and Asian food and people doing creative things out there. A lot of it's very affordable. So Vegas has become like a pretty good food city from like old school off the strip Italian joints to like I went to like a Japanese burger place that was good to like Thai food or like ramen places. It's worth just exploring and being adventurous. Final question. What was Nate's favorite hand of poker he played on this trip to Vegas? Uh, it was some hand where I had pocket sixes and turned it into a bluff and it caused a player to like go on tilt. Wait, 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 wait. Explain that. Yeah, I guess, I guess no one would know what the hell that means. So I have a mediocre hand. It's a pair. 
But how I, it's so hard to avoid like poker charge. I know. Right? Okay, bluff. I we understand bluff. What I don't know is tilt. When you said to go off tilt or on tilt, I thought like on tilt he flipped over the table and had like a you know reality TV moment. Is that what that means? He he didn't flip over the table. He got very mad at me because usually if you bluff, you don't want to show the bluff because you're giving away information, right? Unless you're kind of like a master of that game, you just want to not give your opponent free information. In this case. His buddy who was walking by offered me a hundred bucks to like show the bluff and I'll take a hundred bucks to show a bluff. People in Las Vegas are chaotic. Yeah. So I showed it and he got very mad at me about having that hand, but I think I played it right because number one, this is technical. He wasn't betting enough. His bet sizes were too small. So it gave me a good price to continue with the hand. Also like he was giving away like a lot of information. So in some tournaments, you can enter more than once. This is a tournament he said he was complaining about how he had entered the first time and then had pocket kings, which is the second best hand in poker, lost to pocket aces, which is the best hand. And then it took a long time to like re-register for this tournament. There was a shortage of dealers. It took like two hours to play his second attempt, his second bullet, as poker players would call it. So I thought that meant that he had just sat down. He is really not going to want to like having just spent two hours investing in this new entry, he was going to be very reluctant to play a hand where he had to call off all his chips. And also there are physical things too. Like his frustration was pretty evident when he checked. I mean, he had taken a Viagra instead of an Adderall. What do you expect? (laughs) No, but like people like, you know, (laughs) but good players will, actually not every good player, but it was a hand where like, I think technically it's probably a marginal play, right? But you are carefully gathering information and reading the situation and I took it from like kind of a marginal play to I think a really good and even like obvious play and so that hand I think was maybe one of the best hands I played and also getting to show the bluff and you know he was some dude from New Jersey with long hair or something he got like pretty much on tilt because of that and that was pretty fun. All right there you have it thank you for sharing your Las Vegas stories with us. And uh, I'm sure we'll be back before too long with more mailbag talk now that you're back on the East Coast and we can pin you down for more podcasts. But thank you, Nate. Thank you, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary Curtis is on audio editing. And Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.